0: Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about the meaning of science fiction. I'm Charlie Jane Anders, a science fiction writer who thinks a lot about science. And I'm Annalee
1: Newitz, a science
0: journalist who writes science fiction. Today, we're going to be talking about Afrofuturism, which is bigger than ever thanks to movies like Black Panther and Into the Spider-Verse and tons of amazing music that's coming out recently. We're incredibly lucky to be joined in the studio by Sean Taylor, a writer and scholar on Afrofuturism and the ethnospeculative science fiction, comic books, popular culture and mythology Folklore. Sean Taylor is the co founder of the popular geek culture site, the Nerds of and the co founder of the Black Comic Arts Festival. So get ready to travel with us into the black future. So to start us off, here's a clip of Itasha Womack, the author of Afrofuturism, the world of black sci-fi and fantasy culture, talking at the Sonic Arts Festival, where she actually defines what Afrofuturism is.
2: What exactly is Afrofuturism? Well, it's a way of looking at the future and alternate realities through a black cultural lens. A black cultural lens means the people of the African continent, in addition to the diaspora, uh, people in the Americas and in Europe, etc. It is an artistic aesthetic, uh, but it's also kind of a method of self-liberation or self-healing. It's a, it can be a part of critical race theory, and in other respects, it's an epistemology as well. But it intersects the imagination, technology, uh, black culture, liberation, and mysticism.
0: So, Sean, what do you think about that clip? And do you agree with how Itasha Womack kind of defines Afrofuturism?
3: I do agree, but I also, I'm weary about having it be a catch-all for right. everything. Because I think that can be kind of dangerous, and that kind of loses its potency. For me, for my just work and just how I live my life as being, you know, it's definitely epistemological. It's ontological. It's a philosophical. And I think there's an artistic aesthetic with it. But I think we also need to be careful about trying to put everything under that has black in rockets or (laughs) unicorns (laughs) under the same umbrella, because I think then once again, I think we'll dilute what has become very a powerful liberatory tool for a lot of different artists and people who are just trying to live their lives.
1: How do you define a difference between black science fiction and Afrofuturism?
3: I mean, I think of like, like George Schuyler, Black Empire back in the 20s. That to me is like black science fiction. It's like... Black folks in a traditional white science fiction setting, Uh where I believe that Afrofuturism is really about fundamentally challenging the Western notions of science fiction and turning it into something completely different than the tropes that we've been accustomed to for so long.
0: So it's not enough to just have inclusion. It's not enough to just put Black people into the kind of science fiction No, I think that's a fool's
3: errand. I think it's kind of like what Bucky Fuller said. You don't fight the system. You create a new one to make the other one obsolete. Right. And I think what Afrofuturism does is, is it acknowledges and understands that the whiteness, white supremacy, things that are there, white science fiction, but we're building something completely different over here that's not beholden to or having to talk back to you know, the traditional science fiction that we've ever, that we've been experiencing.
0: So is it a matter of aesthetic? or Is it a matter of like the starting I think it's aesthetic framework? and I think it's intent.
3: Okay. I think it's also intent as well. Like what is your purpose of telling this story? Is it for liberation? Is it for just visibility, which is, you know, that's gonna be here nor there. Like, what is it actually for? What is your purpose in telling this particular, or creating that particular artwork or that conversation? I mean, for me, I use Afrofuturism as a way to imagine myself without the constraints of whiteness. Is how I use it, whether it's my scholarship, when I teach, when I create myself. I'm normally a scholar by trade, but I'm doing my first fiction piece and it's like really important for me to realize what's the purpose of this fiction
0: one of us
3: one of us (laughs) it's hard it's hard because you know when you come from the scholar the scholar mindset it gets very difficult to kind of figure out what the fiction piece is you know and I'm also turning one of my my master's theses into a book on Afrofuturism Afrogeekness and which should be out February of March of next year.
1: That's really interesting. When you were talking about the idea of Afrofuturism being about imagining writing without the constraints of whiteness, it was making me think about the fact that I feel like in the United States, Afrofuturism kind of starts with slave narratives, which is to say um, writing by people like Frederick Douglass mm-hmm. or Sojourner Truth or people who were enslaved and were either trying to convince white people to let black people be free, or we're talking to other black people about what it means to be free. And I think this is a history that obviously is not at all shared with whites. It's an origin of thinking about the future, which is about claiming selfhood. And it's just Mm -hmm. about saying, okay, now we can think about a future because we're not owned anymore, and we don't have the constraints of whiteness. And I think it's important to think about that history behind Afrofuturism, when we think about how it's different from, say, white science fiction or, you know, European science fiction, because there's no moment in the history of whiteness where white people are like, "Oh, we're going to build a future out of having been slaves." It's like, "Oh, we're trying to like imagine what tomorrow will be based on our history of like industrial reproduction or whatever." <laughs> you know,
3: like even Italian futurism is different. You know, right? I mean, like, Italian, yeah. it's, it's not that. Right. Yeah,
1: Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's interesting to think about how different national groups imagine the future. But I think in the context of the U.S., like it's such a different history and such a different context for imagining tomorrow.
3: I mean, if you think of the rapid progression of blackness in the United States, right? I mean, it's unbelievable. Like... Segregation wasn't that long ago. No, you know Jim Crow, not that long ago. If you look at you know historical time, and I think that we've done so much. I mean, because blackness itself is science fiction. Mm -hmm. I mean, aliens came to your planet, stole you, Uh brought you to a new planet with new flora, new fauna, new diseases. What did you lose along that journey? You you Mm -hmm. lost your gods, you lost your instruments, you lost geographic connections. I think that's why Black Panther was so powerful for people because it replaced everything lost in slavery. They had their own languages, they had their own cosmologies, they had all these things that were lost. I think that's why, because the movie itself, it's a good movie. It's good, yeah. You know, it's not like the best that Marvel has to offer, to be perfectly honest, but what it did was reminded people that we weren't always... Post colonial project.
1: That's right. And kind of manufactured by whiteness again, yes. because the idea of blackness, well, like whiteness, mm-hmm. those are inventions of the United Absolutely. States. Those are not identities <laughs> that existed in Europe or Africa. One of the things I thought was so funny about Black Panther was that when Africans watched it, they were like, what is this culture? It's this (laughs) kind of weird, like, African mashup, you know, of all these different things. I think for African Americans, that, like you said, that's filling in the blanks. Or other
3: black folks who aren't continental Africans.
1: Right, diaspora. Because our
3: diaspora is incredible. Like me, I'm Jamaican and Puerto Rican. So my social context is completely different. But I grew up in Brooklyn in an African-American context, you know, hip hop and the rest. I mean, so black identity itself is a futurist project because how do you project out of your limited context or the context that you are limited to? You know, the projects themselves are a futurist project, (laughs) right, and then how did you come out of that? And so I think what Afrofuturism does is allows you to manipulate context in ways that if you stayed with Eurocentric sci-fi, fantasy, whatever tropes, you would never be able to tell the stories that we need to be tell for ourselves. Yeah,
0: You said that you think there's an important distinction between black science fiction and, and Afrofuturism, that the two are not the same
3: thing. And they're both very valuable, though. Just want yeah. to make sure that they're valuable.
0: And so what are the kind of formative, important works of early Afrofuturism that you kind of point to?
3: I think um, Stephen Barnes' Street Lethal is very important, because I remember when the first book... Book first came out, it was a white guy in the cover, but the actual protagonist is a black uh, martial artist. Oh, man. <laughs> I mean, the
1: perennial was... cover problem. <laughs>
3: oh man, I, I want somebody to do a trade book with like all the original, and then the actual, like like old Octavia Butler covers doing it there now. Yeah, I mean, I think that. I think um, Jules of Aptar, mm-hmm. um, Sam R Delaney. Uh, George Schuyler, Black Empire, which kind of like straddles the Afro, because it's it's actually, it was meant as satire, because George Schuyler was actually really conservative in the 20s black man, but Black Empire is like, you know, this whole separate thing. I think musically, I think, I would argue that music has done more for Afrofuturism than than literature has in a lot of ways, like Drexia, which is, you know, because techno itself is, is Afrofuturism. People think that techno, rave culture is this white european thing it's not it's black detroit people are like you know when your entire financial ability is usurped by machines you know what does that sound like (laughs) how do you respond how do you resist that that's like Juan atkins and all those guys out of detroit because detroit is black afrofuturistic music you know drexia has this this entire um songs album cycle about slaves falling off slave ships and creating an an aquatic society under the ground it's called neptune's children between that, I mean, dub music itself in Jamaica is Afrofuturist, because people you know, forget that dub was basically created using cast off electronics that didn't work. And so they, that's why dub sounds so weird because <laughs> oh, they were man. using equipment that wasn't 100% functional. They were music
1: hackers. They're music yeah. hackers, that's exactly what they were. And oh I think my
3: God. hacking itself is an Afrofuturist concept. I mean, the guy who mailed himself out of slavery Like, was his last name was Really Box? I mean, like, how (laughs) incredible is that? Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, I think there's these moments. I think now we're trying to codify Afrofuturism, which I think makes sense to a degree. But I also think that we are putting a lot of things and we're retrofitting a lot of things into Afrofuturism. But then, that, by that doing that, really.
1: we're losing these strands, like you said, yeah. of, of hacking and DIY, which mm-hmm. have been completely appropriated by like white punk mm-hmm. and like sort of white urban hip-hop. homesteaders.
3: Like we've been growing our own vegetables since forever in mm-hmm. our yards. Yeah. Now it's this cool movement. It's <laughs> like no, just, that was we had to do that to survive. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Back in the day, oh, organic Rossas were having ital food for how long? Like right. All food was organic before industrialization. Like, what are you talking about? And so a lot of these things that people are doing, indigenous communities were doing, black communities are doing, now have become commodified and now we are reappropriating them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just, also I think it's a fool's errand. Just do what you gotta do. Not everything has to be academic. (laughs) Or, Or, you know, just do what you gotta do and live the life. So, I mean, obviously,
0: when it comes to music, some of the big things that people bring up a lot are like Parliament Funkadelic, yes. and like, here's a tiny clip from the Mothership Connection album. Coming to you directly from the Mothership.
2: Top of the chocolate Milky Way. 500,000 kilowatts of P-funk power. So kick back, dig, while we do it to you in your eardrums. Oh, me, I'm known as Lollipop Man, alias the long-haired sucker. My motto is, make mine the people.
3: Do you think that that's important in the history of Afrofuturism? I think, but I think, you know, we talk about Parliament Funkadelic, Janelle Monáe, but we forget Missy Elliott. Right. When Missy Elliott came out, I remember all my black sci-fi heads were calling each other like, did you see this video? What is happening? You hear this music, what is happening? And to have it be a woman who wasn't in the, the traditional body spectrum come out and do these things, we were, it was the most celebratory thing that I remember experiencing in popular music at the time.
0: I mean, obviously, you've done a lot of work in comics, and like when it comes to the early 90s, we've got milestone comics. Mm-hmm. And how important was that in the history of like
3: Afrofuturism? Um, Afrofuturists thought absolutely. I think they were great, but also they were just analogs for white heroes in a lot of the mm-hmm. ways. I mean,
0: icon is basically Superman, Superman, and you know, hardware is basically Iron, Iron Man. Man. Yeah.
3: It was, but it was great, though. I mean, for the time, you had this company of these wonderful people you know, rest in peace, Dwayne McDuffie, you had these great people who were doing this wonderful work and you'd never seen yourself, you know, being as a kid. And, you know, me, I was a young adult when milestone mm-hmm. hit. And it was like, wait a minute, going into, I remember seeing, like, Blood Syndicate and it was going, all right, I want all of those titles on my pull list. Yeah. <laughs> I want every, you know, they were marginal quality, let's be honest. I mean, they were, like, they're hit or miss,
0: I mean, but, I love a lot of those comics. Yeah. I think the whole run of Icon I thought was amazing. I think Icon like, was great.
3: I think it did some subversion of tropes, but reinforced others.
0: The thing that I loved about Icon is that the real hero is Rocket, you know? Yeah. It's this black girl who finds this alien guy who basically doesn't
3: give a shit. He's conservative. as hell. He's like John McWhorter with He's like
0: just kind of hiding out. He happens to be black because his ship crash-landed in a slave plantation, and so he took on that appearance, but he doesn't really... See any need to do anything for anybody until mm-hmm. she comes along and basically turns him into this superhero. And Dwayne McDuffie talked over and over again of how the real hero of those stories is Rocket. Yeah. And if they ever make an Icon movie, which I would dearly love, <laughs> I hope it's Rocket's story because, yeah. like, she's the one who creates Icon and she's the one who really drives the whole thing. I mean, I think, and that
3: also speaks to the place of Black women in, in society and why Black women are really fueling Afrofuturism. Mm-hmm. It's always the hard choice. It's always the community choice. I think there's something about that I think is really beautiful, how you know, you look at, like, you know, Octavia Butler is everybody's touchstone. Mm-hmm. And it's not Samuel R. Delaney, which I love Chip Delaney, but Butler is the touchstone for almost every Afrofuturist writer, for a reason, because how she thought about the craft of science fiction was anti-tropy, it was anti, it was ahistorical, mm-hmm. we never saw that, we never saw Kindred before, ever, until Kindred came out. And when that hit, it was just the most, like, what the hell is this? We didn't question that there was no mechanism for the time travel. (laughs) You know, we didn't question these things. Or then, you know, you you look at her parable books, the Mm -hmm. parable and That's prophecy. I mean, Make America Great Again is in the book. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, this is, like, prophecy that she was doing. And so, for me, I think it's really important that, you know, I think that sometimes... You know, a lot of men are doing a lot of like scholarship in Afrofuturism. I think that we're missing a lot more female voices doing the hard scholarship of Mm -hmm. Afrofuturism's work.
1: Yeah, I was going to say another great kind of forgotten 90s moment is the Cosmic Slop series. Oh, yeah. Which was an HBO anthology series. Basically, it hosted was... Hosted by George Clinton. Hosted by George Three-eyed, floating yeah.
3: head of yeah. And it
1: was basically, it was kind of the African-American Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it was so ahead of its time because now we have Jordan Peele doing yeah. the Twilight Zone and we're kind of, this is going mainstream. But at the time, it was a show that was highlighting black science fiction. We actually have a clip here from The Space Traders, which is adapted from a short story by Derek Bell, who was a, a lawyer uh, who just decided to dabble in science This is at the bottom
2: fiction. of the well. We are space traders bearing exquisite gifts that will restore your nation to its former glory. Nearly limitless quantities of gold and precious metals that will instantly erase your deficit. Machines that will renew your rivers and your air cold fusion technology for a safe cheap and inexhaustible source of energy all All we ask in return is the delivery to our vessels five days from now every child woman and man in your nation with at least twenty five hundred milligrams of melanin in their skin per square centimeter what the hell is melanin put more simply in trade for solving all your most pressing Domestic catastrophes. We are asking for every person in your country that you would classify as black.
0: Love that it's like Ronald Reagan, that the yeah. aliens are like, let's just put on the face of Ronald Reagan to offer this bizarre trade.
3: And I also think that it's still ahead of its time. If you actually look, I mean, I would never, that's one of those movies I would never want to be redone. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, you could do it with better effects and the rest, but I think there's something about that and. The button, I think, it was not called kind of a button, but the idea of like the revolution happening, you know, at a certain time when the rifle comes to the house. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's like so many things that were happening in Cosmic Slap. Like to this day, I remember when, it, when the videotape came out. Yes, I'm old. It was um, <laughs> the cover was a magic eye mm-hmm. <laughs> thing, and it was like yeah. the greatest thing ever. But to this day, it's one of those holy grails for Afrofuturist collectors to find, like that videotape. Oh, my God. Yeah, there yes, were a few
1: other moments. Like, there was Tales from the Hood, which came know. out in the 90s, which was another kind of anthology. It was a movie, but going into the horror genre, not quite as good as yeah. Cosmic Slop. It was uneven, but it had some frickin' great and moments. It's what, and
3: it's for what it was. I mean, like, I would even argue um, Rusty Condif, who also did Tales of the Fear of a Black Hat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. was just, we never saw that type of satire mm-hmm. before. And I think the, the other I, what, what movie I don't think gets enough credit is Pitch Black.
2: Mm-hmm. And oh. I think Pitch Black was
3: an interesting one because we had a space imam who was going to like, who's going on Hajj in space. And mm-hmm. the main character was this Keith obviously David. black. Yeah, was main character was obviously black, but ethnically ambiguous. I mean, there's like, so many things that were happening in Pitch Black and we were like, whoa. Yeah. And then I think Attack the Block doesn't get enough credit. Oh yeah. And that's oh my such God, a I fantastic that movie. film. I mean <laughs> that partly movie is I think so
1: great. Partly it's because the UK context, so in the States we didn't, mm-hmm. you know, notice it as much. Yeah, it starts yeah. with the
3: black guys were and in, in biracial guys robbing a white woman. Uh-huh. <laughs> like yeah. That's how the oops, spoiler alert, but I mean, that's how yeah. it starts. I mean that's so I can see how the people movie. It's that's But it's
1: also yeah. it's portrayed, portrayed as pretty innocent and kind of, you know, cute in a weird yeah. way. I mean cute crime. Um uh-huh. also there's just Yeah, and the alien I love when the kids are talking about the aliens and they're like they are really black. No, <laughs> black. <laughs> 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 and oh it God. also, and it
3: also upended the Spielbergian trope of adolescence being white middle class. Yes. And adolescent adventure mm-hmm. being white middle class, I think that's one thing. You know, I was so it was great. It was like, oh, this is super anti-Spielberg.
1: Yeah. Like, it's playing the with the ET trope yes. Yes. very yes. much, and it has a lot of that tone. Like, it's a Ooh. very gentle film in Ooh. a lot of ways. It's like hijinks. But, yeah, it's centering, like, working-class black kids. But it's also
3: the danger of black adventure. Yeah. Like, being a black kid, you have to be very mindful of the adventures you go on, you know? That's why, I mean, you know, the violence, that's why I think the violence in that movie was so perfect. Mm -hmm. Because it was actually shocking violence.
0: Yeah, so I have another clip that I wanted to play, which is Walida Marisha, the co-editor of the anthology Octavia's Brood Science Fiction Stories from Social Justice Movements. She's talking at Portland State University, and she's kind of explaining why she thinks Black Lives Matter is inherently kind of a science fiction concept.
2: I'm thankful that Black Lives Matter put forward the idea of a name of a rallying cry that is a vision for the future. They could have said, it could have been hashtag stop killing us. And that would have been real and absolutely right. And we have a hashtag that says, what is this future? Let's put this out. Uh, a couple years ago, Black Lives Matter actually explicitly asked for folks to submit writings answering the prompt, in a world where Black Lives Matter, I imagine. So that you know, Black folks would not just be thinking about this in some vague way, right? That we actually can see it. We can't build what we can't imagine. We can't build what we can't see and smell and taste. And we don't feel empowered unless we see that that future is ours.
0: What's interesting about that is that it's kind of a utopian vision. And like, I wanted to ask you, like, first of all, what do you think of that? And second of all, is Afrofuturism inherently utopian? Or, you know, it always obviously contains like an apocalyptic strand as well. Mm -hmm. But is it inherently a utopian vision?
3: See, I don't know, because like utopian to me is so Western. The idea of utopia and even dystopia is so Western that I don't even know if those categories apply to Afrofuturism. And I think that the new terminology, what is the new context, what is the new space that Afrofuturism is trying to create. And I think it's almost impossible because you know we are post-colonial beings, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's almost, it's hard to divorce yourself, especially if you've been formally educated, holy God. <laughs> it's like very <laughs> difficult to detox yourself from, from those ideas. And so that's something I've been doing with my little circle of friends that we've been figuring out like, what is the new play space? What is the new destination that Afrofuturism is either going or trying to establish? And that's something we haven't got yet i don't know if it's inherently utopian but i think it's inherently hopeful and i think it's hopeful because I mean, we we're talking about the idea of you know black modernity being the slave the slave narratives and i think that's what kojo ashun who the uh, he's the author of more brilliant than the sun which is probably a very seminal Afrofuturistic text and saying that that's our modern moment is this this, this post-slavery the slave narrative this thing coming from that history like how do you divorce yourself from that process to create something new. And so I think black life in the West has been dystopic <laughs> for, for so long. And then we're not even trying to find utopia. I think we're trying to find uh, equanimity. I think we're trying to find balance in some ways, or trying to find a way to feel safe. And I don't know if safe is utopian. I think safe is just like hopefully a new default.
0: We're gonna come back in a moment and then we're gonna talk about the new wave of Afrofuturism. It feels as though in 2019, Afrofuturism has kind of in some way gone mainstream. You've got movies like Black Panther and Into the Spider-Verse. We talked about it at the, at the start. You know, is that true? And how is Afrofuturism different in 2019 than it was in like 1969?
3: I love it that people are getting into it, but I'm also concerned like it's it's going the puffy route of hip hop uh-huh. where it becomes just hyper commercialized in like what made it so wonderful and amazing and Transgressive gets erased Mm -hmm. because it's like you know back in the late '90s, early 2000s, you could slap youth or hip hop in front of anything and get a grant for your nonprofit because that was the buzz term. Now I think now Afrofuturism has become the buzz thing, which I think is great for a lot of young people coming up. But I also think that there's a there's a loss of integrity because it's the cool thing right now. Hip hop is this great, beautiful global enterprise now, but it's kind of also like, well, okay. You know, I'm a hip-hop guy, grew up in it. Now it's kind of like, it's everywhere now and nowhere now because of just with the diffusion of culture through the internet and the rest, there's no place. It's an everywhere and an everyone now. And I think there's something to me that that's kind of problematic, even though I hate that word, about it, because I think we're losing some of the integrity of it being everywhere. Not to say we we need gatekeepers, not at all, but I just want um, conscious intent and conscious participators who are going to be able to create some fiction, non-fiction, music, whatever it is. I'm just worried that people are, this is the quick money thing right now. Uh This is the quick exposure thing right now. And it gets kind of a little bit frustrating a little bit. So (laughs) do
1: you think that, for example, the popularity of Black Panther, is that part of the dilution process? Because I I wanted to come back to something you were saying before the break about how Afrofuturism kind of tries to get out of this dystopia, utopia Mm -hmm. mindset that's so popular in the West. And I wonder if, even though maybe it is diluted, is something like Black Panther giving us a way to think outside that and to kind of think about a future that's not centering
3: white people? I think it does, but I also think that Black Panther was water in the desert. Mm-hmm. Like we had nothing like that before. It's like oh my god, and right. everybody rushed to it. People were coming in and and dressing up, and you know, I'm I mean, I'm even you know known as the coiner of the term Okonda that, you know, uh, for uh, Oakland and Wakanda together to actually to bridge mm-hmm. Black Panther Party in the Black Panther film,
2: mm-hmm. right?
3: And now a lot of people are profiting off that word. <laughs> um. <laughs> no. You I mean, should have patented
1: sh- it, man. Not at all, not at all. I mean, Trademark, knowledge, Wakanda.
3: Knowledge wants to be free. Uh. <laughs> like I said, people think when I talk about Black Panther that I'm disparaging. I'm not. If you read all my reviews about it, I love the movie. But I also think that it was a giant thing and and if it didn't have the Marvel machine behind it it wouldn't have sparked Mm -hmm. I mean so like like a movie like Fast Color which nobody saw Mm -hmm. was one of the most I mean three generations of black women with superpowers like nobody sees this movie and it's an incredible movie but if you don't have the machine that's why I don't want Afrofuturist presentation and cultural artifacts to be dependent on the machine Mm -hmm. to get that much of an impact especially when the internet is, is democratizing in a lot of ways
0: Yeah, and so actually, here's a clip from Janelle Monae's movie, Dirty Computer, which is one of my favorite Afrofuturist things of the last few years.
2: You will repeat after me. Your name is Jane 57821. My name is Jane 57821. I am a dirty computer. I am a dirty computer.
0: What do you think about Janelle Monet and other musicians like that who are kind of bringing cyberpunk aspects and other things into, like, the story of liberation?
3: I think... That dirty computer reminds me so much of Octavia Butler Mm -hmm. because the body is the locus of transformation. Yeah. And there's something about the body as the locus of of change and transformation, of liberation. And so for her to reclaim her body publicly Mm -hmm. and being able to manipulate and transform her body in any way that she wants is so powerful. Yeah. In ways that I don't think we talk enough about.
0: And it's about reclaiming her identity as well, because they're trying to erase who she is and turn her into this other thing. And she has all these memories of partying and having these beautiful celebrations with all these people who are diverse in various ways, including gender and sexuality Mm -hmm. as well as race. And she kind of uses those as a defense against this kind of erasure.
1: She also is so great at showing us black robots, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. not in not necessarily in Dirty Computer, but like this is something that a lot of people have talked about. Is like, like why are robots suite. always yeah. white? Yeah. Always. And you know, and that's again part of erasing a black future. Mm-hmm. It's like okay, well, the future is just going to be like white machines and white people, and that's. And it's it. also
3: the idea of programmer bias because as a programmer, you're gonna, in a builder, you're gonna build your bias into your machine, and so mm-hmm. if you make a black robot, Android maybe there was a black creator behind it which actually tells a different story unlike Terminator where the black guy is responsible for killing the entire world. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but he was Miles so great in brother,
1: in brother from Another he Planet. Does, <laughs>
3: which is but that's also an interesting movie. I mean I have a really love hate relationship with that movie yeah. and I'm, I gotta find a way to like figure out what I wanna do. I really wanna do a documentary about that movie. Oh, yeah. Because wow. there's so much to unpack in that movie. There's it's, a it's lot. It's not that long of a movie either. I mean there's so much to unpack in that movie. Yeah. Visually, aesthetically, sound choices. Mm-hmm. So many things. Defo- black in deformity. Like why is every time there's black? Blacks in science fiction is a deformity whether it's, oh, morphs, it's the three yeah so mm-hmm. where were this forehead or oh. um, or Jordy LaForge being blind mm-hmm. or Storm having white hair and pupil eyes you know there's yeah. always a fear, there's always a physical hiccup in a lot of black folks in science fiction mm-hmm. and so I was wondering kind of it's there's like some prosthetic
0: about. or something there's prosthetic have? or
3: there's an absence of it's not to be able-less but it's like why is blackness always like conflated You know, if you're going to make the person disabled, make them disabled in a way, as opposed to... Also,
1: cyborg is like... Yeah, cyborg, you know, that's a a
3: desexualization It's true that
0: there's a lot of black cyborgs, including cyborg. Yeah,
3: Yeah, that's why I brought up
1: cyborg. I mean, I think it goes back to what you were saying about the black body being the site of a lot of reclaiming, Mm -hmm. but also of colonization. And so the body becomes this place where... Yeah, there's a lot of absences or a lot of extra extra can't just have a black body. You got to have a black body with like robot arms and a 40 or inch like, penis. Yeah, That's well, hydraulic.
0: Everybody <laughs> needs to have that. I mean, come on. So there was a lot of scholarship on Afrofuturism kind of starting in the mid 90s. And how does that process of codification change how we create Afrofuturist content?
3: It's weird because black culture is one of the only cultures, whether it's any black manifestation of culture, is asked to kill its elders. Mm hmm. Hip hop new MCs are supposed to hate the old MCs. Young scholars now are supposed to meant to hate the old scholars. Whereas rock is like, yes, I go back to Rolling Stones, I go back to the Beach Boys, and they're and they're part of, they're proud to be part of a lineage. So I think that these young scholars need to read that issue of social text that Dr. Alondra Nelson edited. And if you're not reading that, I don't know if I trust your scholarship. If, if that's not your foundation, that more brilliant than the sun by Kojo Ashun, There's a couple of texts that if you're not if those aren't your foundational text. I'm not sure if I'm going to trust your project. And I think what we need to really... First of all, we need to start training scholarship outside of the academy. Mm-hmm. You know, some people will call it poverty scholars or whatever you want to call it, but I think people who aren't out of the academy, we need to hear the voices as well, like a Risham. and I would love to hear people who are practicing Afrofuturism but not knowing that they are, and, like, how do you re reintegrate that into an entire body of knowledge? Because I think we're going to see strains of Afrofuturism, because right like, like now you have like an a artist like Nettie Orkivore who is talking about African futurisms, mm-hmm. right? And I'm also souring on the idea, I'm more looking towards African diaspora futurism because of my, my very existence as part of the diaspora and just localizing it as Afro when my connection to Africa is really tenuous, but my connection to the Caribbean is one generation removed. And my entire social being is formed by reggae, Mm-hmm. and salsa and dub and you know machetes like that's my entire work and so i'm hoping that when we start seeing more scholarship like second third wave scholarship like after dr rinaldo nelson and the rest and like yeah john jennings with the ethno and he's just a brilliant scholar i would like to see some people out of the academy do scholarship but i'd also love to see community scholarship about this because i think we're missing a lot of voices by elevating the purely science fiction and the purely technological aspects, but not even the cosmological aspects of Afrofuturism. I think we're we're losing a lot of that in favor of elevating tech and elevating Ivory Tower scholarship.
1: Yeah, well, that's why Tananarive do is so interesting because she just did that whole series on horror. horror oh artist. my
3: God, that was such a... Yeah. Oh my God, that was beautiful.
1: So she did this series on horror noir and part of her project is to try to get outside of scholarship. So she teaches at UCLA and she has a project to try to reach outside the academy. And mm-hmm. also she's not about tech and about mm-hmm. sci-fi. She's looking at gothic stuff. She's looking at sort of historical mm-hmm. narratives. And so I think that's another like super good example. And I
3: think reading myself. To keep I think it was like my first horror novel I think I've ever read, and it is fucking terrifying. It's terrifying, and upsetting. Like
1: it's not actually. It's not like you're like
3: biting your nails. Yeah. You're just
1: like, oh my god, I'm repulsed and like excited and like it's very. But it was the question yeah.
3: I picked it up. I was like, what the hell can scare black people? <laughs> you know, I've been shot, stabbed, gunned my face by the New York the NYPD. Like, what can scare me? I read the book. I was like, oh yeah, okay, this, This. Yeah. Oh, man. this can scare me. And I think that what Tana do does so well is to make all of us included in it. Because mm-hmm. some sci-fi, even some like after future sci-fi can be a little bit arrogant in this presentation mm-hmm. a lot of the times and kind of above the people. Like it treats itself almost too seriously at times. Where I think she does, she writes right at the heart of us. And I think, I you know, after that, I've read everything she's ever written. I mean, she's like one of my like, go-to, everybody's, I need a good book. Oh, here you go. <laughs>
1: Enjoy. I'm going I'm to Amazon OneTouch
3: <laughs> for you as a gift right now because you deserve to re- experience this book.
1: Well, I was listening to one of her talks and she was talking about how the African-American experience is dystopian and is apocalyptic. And mm-hmm. so to return to something we were talking about earlier, um, you know, I think that she's one of many people who's trying to think about like, how do we get toward a future from dystopia? And again, this is something that I think is completely absent from white science fiction or from Western science fiction more generally, that sense of like, we are actually in dystopia. We're not saying like, well, we could maybe get into yeah. dystopia if we had telescreens and like the Ministry of Truth. <laughs> yeah. It's like, no, we are actually there. We're the
3: black maid's tale right now. Yeah,
1: like we are literally We're right there. Now. And so now our project is not to like go to some fantasy land or avoid some terrible fate, but to like actually frickin survive and then build a world out of that.
3: Post-Black Lives Matter world, I think we're gonna see a lot more survival narratives. Mm-hmm. I think that may be the new, I mean, like how do you make your way through this? Like, right. you know, this weekend, you know, when they see us, a heroin. I mean, like I remember living through Central oh, Park Five gosh. and being terrified and being labeled all these things and you know, hence the NYPD pulling their guns on me. If you think about just the, all the pain at everything that we're still here. I, I was telling a friend of mine this the other day that that we have Afrofuturism, that Black folks, that uh, Ava DuVernay is able to do these things proves to us that white supremacy isn't all powerful. Like that we are still here is unbelievable after everything that we've gone through, everything that we've experienced. I mean, not, oh, not to mention that things that our black queer brothers and sisters have experienced, which is, you know, we're missing black trans women left and right, but people are still out there trying to do their things and trying to like, what, like, where does that come from? I'm a pessimistic guy by nature. I'm like, the glass is half empty. It's broken. has Ebola on it. I mean, Ah. that's just my nature. But to see us still thriving and trying, and I would even argue that black camp is Afrofuturist in a lot of ways.
1: Oh, yeah. You for know? sure, yeah. yeah. Because having pleasure in the face of dystopia is incredibly <laughs> radical. It's and that's why music is so important.
0: important. And speaking of music and speaking of stories of survival, we have one last clip, which is from Clipping, who got nominated for a Hugo Award two years in a row. Uh, and this is from their album Splendor and Misery.
2: Higher than these motherfuckers claim it is their purpose. Turn and next your partner why he started acting nervous. Rat, keep talking that's lip service. Rat's Decided it was time to hit the surface. Cats, sleeping on it, right them off like cursive. Drown a fucking hater, his experience immersive. Now that he can feel it, call the doctors and the nurses. up. And that's
0: this story about survival and about this enslaved person on a spaceship. And they actually teamed up with River Solomon, who wrote An Unkindness that's of Ghosts, which is a another kind of story about enslaved survival. Bo- survival yeah. And they did a, a novella called The Deep, which mm-hmm. is coming out this fall, which is all about escaped slaves who go to the bottom of the ocean and become kind of sea creatures. Which is like, yeah,
3: they'd hold the Drexia song cycle from Drexia, which was in the 90s. I think it
0: was. So this is kind of picking up that idea again. Yeah,
1: it's a recurring y- fantasy, I think, mm. and it's again, it's a fantasy of survival. Like, what yeah. do you do if you if there's something awaiting you that's worse than death? Because yeah. slavery can be worse than. I mean, it's a social death, which is more painful than yeah. actual death, oftentimes. You know, how do you survive? Well, you learn to breathe underwater. Yeah. yeah. Or you learn to build a community that's like clinging to driftwood on the top of the water. One of my professors back in the day, Gerald Visner, talked about the idea of survival. Mm-hmm. Um, he came out of Indian rights movements and Native American movements. And he, you know, he was very against this idea of like what he would call sort of the Indian dying out. You know, he was like, no, we're surviving everywhere, all over the place. And survivance was kind of his idea of that utopian story of just just surviving like Not necessarily building a shining castle (laughs) full of iPhones, you know, like just getting by is pretty good.
3: I think that's, a buddy of mine was saying that the ultimate goal for blackness is to be able to be equally mediocre.
0: Uh Uh-huh,
1: oh yeah.
3: (laughs) Just so you're not having to to be super all the time because being super all the time is really freaking exhausting. Just be as good as the mediocre <laughs> way. Yeah. You know, that's I mean, my goal. Just like being able to make, <laughs> but being able to make the same mistakes. Yeah. And, but being able to be able to have the same opportunities post mistake. Oh yeah. I mean, that's. I think that's what a lot of this does, and I think we're gonna. Sh- it's gonna shake out. I think Afrofuturism will shake out in the next year or two when you start having more Afrofuturism classes or meetups or people really. So we're gonna figure out what this is gonna f- coalesce in. Because the problem is with technology, time becomes dilated. In a way, and so it took, you know, hip-hop now, you know, we still have people call Lil, 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 and it's, hip-hop is middle-aged
0: uh-huh. now,
3: right? So I'm wondering, what's going to happen temporally with Afrofuturism? Are we going are we accelerating too far to be able to actually recognize its full potential right now because of just equal opportunity internet access and equal opportunity uh, cultural artifact distribution? I'm, I'm just kind of curious how the temporality of the moment will, will affect to the project
1: yeah we'll circle back in 10 years and see <laughs> that, like <laughs> oh, what's yeah. actually come out of it yeah i think that that's right and i and hopefully the answer is just more black creators in general like and then that's how, yeah. good
3: future i think it's i think it's great also too i mean i'm gonna be a, a jerk right now but just because you're black and you create doesn't mean you have to support you right it means you have to be good i think what after future Business has done in a lot of cases that people are like you didn't support me it's like you didn't care yourself like, I can't love you more than you love yourself. And so I think if people are gonna do this, I mean, like, have the integrity. I think treat it as you would, like, you know, for example, you know, today's new comic book day, it's Wednesday, mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of, I see black people at the comic book store all the time at Cape and Kyle in Oakland on Clay Street, so I'm calling you all out, who will go buy all of the, the black independently produced comics and go straight for Marvel, DC, Image, Boom, Dynamite. But like, then you complain that there's no diversity.
2: Mm-hmm. but you're
3: not supporting the diversity that exists there because we're still beholden to the white superhero trope. And so I figure if we kind of like turn that into black folk, black mythic thought, I think we're gonna be actually be able to, as you're saying, like, you know, get those diversity of experiences and being able to really see the full, like, you know, Bitterroot is like the best comic out right now. And they're doing that. They're like, we're not gonna do superhero stuff. We're gonna go back to Harlem Mm-hmm. Jazz Age like we did this and understand what that and that, that reclamation of our history I think is what one of the best vehicles that Afrofuturism provides or best mechanisms for reclamation I think is, is Afrofuturism
0: okay cool thank you so much for thanks joining us thanks for having us. me I appreciate yeah. it yeah that, that was, was so awesome also wasn't you, boring no no it was
3: the opposite <laughs> there was of like 90 <laughs>
1: million more things <laughs> we could have <laughs> talked about awesome. so yeah that was actually fucking that was fantastic
3: great. so Sean can you tell us where people can find you um, you can find me at seantaylor.net I am currently a senior fellow with the Pop Culture Collaborative writing about the political power of fandom. So there'll be some tools and some things coming out. Black Kids Have Electric Dreams, which is my Afrofutures memoir will be out sometime next year. And yeah, working on some fiction. So yeah, you can get me at Real RealLovePunk on Twitter and SeanDTaylor72 Instagram. Yeah, all those little weird cyber places. Yay, Excellent. thanks for joining Thank us. Thank you so much, appreciate it. Yay, and thanks, thanks to everybody
0: for listening. This has been Our Opinions Are Correct. Uh, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash ouropinionsarecorrect. You can follow us on Twitter at pod, And you can find us wherever you can find podcasts, like Apple Podcasts and Google Play Podcasts. And please leave a review if you like our podcast. And thanks to Veronica Simonetti with Women's Audio Mission for being our engineer and producer and just general all-around superstar. Thanks to Chris Palmer for the music. And thanks to you for listening.
2: All right. See you in a couple weeks. (laughs)